Our reading comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she called her, calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. When it hits you that you've lost something valuable or important, it's a horrible sensation in the very pits of your stomach. Where's my phone? sense of panic gives way to relief when you finally realise where you've put it. If you find where you put it. Or where are my keys? I remember returning from a funeral to find my keys aren't in my pocket. I retraced my steps everywhere I'd been to no avail, only to return home two hours later to see them lying on the ground next to the door. In that case, relief at finding them was tempered by frustration that I hadn't spotted them before I engaged in a fruitless search in all the other places I'd been that day. And then we realised we've lost something important that goes straight to the top of our list of priorities. We don't shrug our shoulders and say, that's oh, okay, I'll look for it next week. No, actually, I need to find it now. Whatever we've lost automatically becomes more valuable and important in our eyes simply because we've lost it and we become driven, fixated on the need to find it again. My mother has one of these kind of call buttons. She doesn't use it very often, but when she lost her TV remote, yes, she wanted someone to come and help her find it again. That's why Jesus' picture of the shepherd who immediately leaves 99 sheep who are safe and sound to go and look for the one who is missing, that rings true, actually. If you're not a shepherd and sheep don't matter to you, you might think, that oh, just shrug your shoulders, I've still got 99 others. Why bother about the one? But to the shepherd, who is dedicated to his sheep, that single sheep immediately becomes the overriding priority. It's not that that particular sheep is bigger or more precious or more valuable than any of the others. 
It's just busy. And therefore the shepherd has to find it. And we shouldn't get too sentimental about all of that. One commentator reminds us that if religion has succeeded in providing a sickeningly sweet portrayal of this scene, this has to be contrasted with the ruggedness of the real reality. The lost animal is frightened and exhausted and in no way facilitates the job of its rescuer. It's heavier than one would think and doesn't smell good. But, notwithstanding the anxiety, the time, the labour, the effort, the trouble involved in looking for this wretched sheep, finding it, recovering it, bringing it home, the shepherd is so overjoyed at having found what he lost that he calls his friends and neighbours together for a celebration. He wants to share with them his relief and delight at having found the sheep that could have been lost forever, could have been killed. Suddenly, out of all the hundred, that one becomes the most precious simply because it was lost but now has been found. And from a domestic perspective, Jesus tells another parable with essentially the same message. A woman loses, has ten silver coins, loses one of them. Each coin would have been valuable, maybe as much as a day's wages. So that's worth hunting for. We don't need to speculate whether the coins form part of a necklace or a wedding dowry or anything that gives them sentimental value or emotional value. They were valuable because they were money. If this represented the woman's life savings, you can see how losing 10% of that would be devastating. How did the coin go missing? No one knows. But you can imagine the woman telling herself, don't panic. It's got to be somewhere. Can't have been stolen because the thief would have taken all 10. So it must be in the house somewhere. So she lights a lamp and meticulously sweeps the house from top to bottom until she finds it. No rest until her search is done. And then again we see her joy and her relief so uncontainable that she calls all her friends and neighbours together to celebrate the finding of the lost queen. They didn't even know it was missing. But such is her exuberance, she cannot keep it to herself. There is a joy that must be shared. Both parables end with a party with a celebration, with a sharing of joy. And that's the point that Jesus wants to make. In the presence of the angels of God, there is that kind of joy, that kind of celebration, that kind of party over one sinner who repents. Over one person who has been lost and then is found. And in the case of the missing sheep, the point of the heavenly celebrations is focused even more clearly on the paramount value of the one missing sheep. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Wow! That one person causes more joy in heaven than 99 who keep on the straight and narrow. We can sometimes give ourselves theological hang-ups over Jesus' words. Because we've read Paul's letter to the Romans. And we know that no one is righteous. Not even one. 
We are all sinners in the sight of God and we all need to repent in order to be saved. Yet according to Luke, Jesus here talks about 99 people who don't need to repent. Seems pretty clear that Jesus never read Paul's letter to the Romans. That doesn't mean that Paul was wrong. Or that Jesus was wrong for that matter. He's simply making a point about the overriding importance and value of recovering that single lost sheep. That single lost coin. That single person whose life has gone off the rails. But who comes back to God. And as a shepherd would devote all that time and effort to looking for a lost sheep, and a woman would devote all that time and effort looking for one lost coin, how much time and effort could be expended in trying to save one lost person? Bringing that one sinful person to the point where they turn their lives around and come back to God. Enough to come down from heaven to do that, as far as Jesus was concerned. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep or a coin? How much is every single individual worth in the sight of God? Enough for him to call a party and celebrate with the angels every time anyone comes back to him. Doesn't mean he doesn't care about the rest of us, who do our best to serve him year in, year out. But it does mean that nothing gladdens the heart of God quite so much as when someone is Saved. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't see it that way. Jesus told these two parables because they were grumbling about the way in which he welcomed the net with tax collectors and sinners of all people. And Jesus' point in telling these parables is to make the point that if just, if just one of these people finds faith and turns to God, that, there's rejoicing in heaven over that. So that completely justifies all the time he spent eating and drinking with these people. You see, in the eyes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those people were undesirable. People whose company it was best to avoid. For the Pharisees and teachers of the law, being holy meant being set apart to God. And that meant being set apart from the likes of tax collectors and sinners. You didn't have anything to do with them. Yet Jesus entered their world, socialised with them, ate with them, drank with them, accepted and welcomed them, went to their parties, went to their homes, because he knew that if just one of them accepted his message and changed his ways, there would be an almighty party in heaven because of that. You see, Jesus had that skill of meeting people at their level without compromising who he was or what he stood for. And wherever he went, whoever he met, he took the presence of God with him and made the kingdom of God available to that person. And some of those people, unlikely as they were, were saved as a result of that encounter. He was on a rescue mission, coming to save the lost. Coming to rescue those who in the eyes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were beyond the pale. Because they, righteous as they were, didn't share God's heart for the lost. They thought their own devotion to God was enough. 
And surely the Lord was pleased with their worship, their observance of the law, their piety, their dedication, their devotion. Well, yes, but, Jesus says, if just one of these tax collectors and sinners turns back to God, then there's more rejoicing in heaven than there is over all your meticulous, careful observance of God's laws. Because God's into saving people, rescuing people, bringing them out of death into life. And one of the ways in which sin manifests itself in our hearts is in our capacity to distance ourselves from people who are different to us. To some I think, well, they, they don't matter quite so much. Sometimes because it's of a different race or a different class or a different culture or, you know, we, we like to draw distinction between us and them. But Jesus drew no such distinctions. He wouldn't classify anyone as an outsider. No one was of less importance to him because they were different to him. For Jesus, every person matters. And if every person matters that much to Jesus, every person needs to matter that much to us as well. And the challenge of these parables to us is that if we are not yearning for people to be saved, then our hearts are not attuned to the heart of God. That longing for the lost to be found. For people to come out of death into life. For people's lives to be turned around and brought back to God. And in preparing this sermon I was reminded of the poem by Gideon Hume which I've quoted before but it's worth saying again. I stand at the door and knock. I stand outside the barred church doors, hammering with my fists, while around me the world dies. I don't want to be let in, but pray for those inside to come out and join the fight. God sent his son into the world to save us. And having saved us, he sends us out into the world to save others in his name. Whose world is God calling you to enter? Who does God want you to welcome into your home so you can share a cup of coffee or a meal with them? Who does God want to place into your heart a yearning for them? Because they don't know Jesus. But they need to discover how the power of his life can turn their lives around. That same powerful, love-driven yearning that brought Jesus into the world and took him to the cross that rescued you wants to reach out through you to others. It's our calling. In a few moments, I want to show you a clip from the film Hacksaw Ridge. It's an immensely powerful film directed by Mel Gibson. It tells the true story of a Seventh-day Adventist by the name of Desmond Doss, who signed up as an army medic in the Second World War. But as a conscientious objector, he refused to bear arms. He wouldn't touch a gun. 
And he was vilified for this by his commanding officers and his fellow soldiers. One of them told him that as soon as they went into combat, he would make sure that Dost didn't come back alive. Their unit was assigned the task of taking what they called Hacksaw Ridge from the Japanese on the island of Okinawa. It involved climbing up a sheer cliff edge and taking the ridge beyond. And an initial attack secured the cliff edge, but it was repulsed by a vicious Japanese counterattack. And when the order to retreat was given to go back down the cliff again, two-thirds of the American soldiers who had gone up over the cliff edge were left dead or wounded at the top. It was Doss who single-handedly set about saving as many of them as he could. Praying as he did so, Lord, help me get one more. Let's see how Mel Gibson portrays this in the film. He rescued 75 American soldiers. An act of bravery for which he was awarded the Medal of Honor. The only non-combatant ever to receive such an award. I wanted to show that clip because the thing that drove him was the knowledge that however many men were safe and sound at the bottom of the cliff, there were still others who needed rescuing at the top. And as a medic, that was his job. At no point did he think, I've done enough now. His prayer was always, Lord, help me get one more. So as we look around the congregation gathered here this evening, is it enough? If I say, not really, that's not to, dis- to disparage the value of every single one of us here in the sight of God, but for every one of us gathered in church on a Sunday evening, there are thousands out there who don't know Christ, who are lost. How do we reach them? Well, there's the challenge, of course. Many of them have no interest in the faith which is so important to us. That's why Jesus calls us to enter their world as he entered ours. And there is no magic formula that will bring people to faith or bring them to church. And because we can't see how it's done, it's difficult. It's very easy for us to shrug our shoulders and be content with coming here to worship with like-minded people week by week. But you know that if you've lost something precious to you, you can't be indifferent about it. And God isn't indifferent to all those other people in the world. God cares passionately about all those people for whom coming to church is the last thing on their agenda on a Sunday evening. How do we reach them? I don't know. But I do know it starts with a prayer. Lord, help me get one more. starts with God putting the desire, the passion, the commitment, the love to save just one person in Jesus' name. Knowing that if we do so, the angels in heaven break open the champagne because of it. And if the desire, the commitment, the passion, the love are not there, we'll always choose the easy option of doing nothing because we don't know what to do or how to go about it. So it starts with, Lord, put in me that love desire, that commitment, that passion for those who are lost. Because if that is beating in our hearts, then we will look for ways to share our faith. 
And we won't rest until that person has found Christ. And then, Lord, we pray, help me get one more. But it starts with a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a society where you are way off people's agenda. And we, we bring before you the, the great difficulty we have with that. But Lord, we, we recognise that your gospel is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. And we pray that if there are people around us who don't know you, may that never be because of our indifference. Place within us that passion, the desire to get one more into your kingdom. And once that desire is there, show us how to go about it. You came from heaven and earth and laid down your life to save us. Help us to heed your call. And give us your grace, we pray.